A reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us in his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Welcome to the America of America podcast. I'm Will Milam, and let's get started. want to send out a quick apology to everybody who was prepared to listen to this episode last Monday and instead received a rebroadcast of the Red River Ridge War. I apologize. I, uh, I had to take a, uh, well, not had to, I got to take a road trip to Colorado to go see a dear friend of mine get married, and uh, that took up a lot of my time, and I'm very glad it did. I'm, uh, there's nothing else in the world I would rather be doing. But uh, I just decided that between the bar studies and getting the podcast recorded that I could either rush the podcast or give myself an extra week to give it, I think, the attention it deserves. And I, I decided on the latter. So I hopefully gave you a nice alternative with uh, the Red River Bridge War episode, which is really an excellent, excellent story. And it was really beneficial to have, uh, again, Rusty Williams's book, um, the Red River Ridge War, which if you go back to that original, uh, that original episode, the link for that book is in the show notes. And if you had any interest in it, I really recommend you read it. Uh, Rusty even actually has a, uh, a new book coming out about Dallas called deadly Dallas about the wild west aspects of Dallas before really Dallas became a civilized city. Uh, and that's forthcoming this summer. And I will have links to that in the show notes to this episode. And I really, really recommend you read all of uh, Rusty's work. It's He's an excellent storyteller and an excellent writer. And with that, let's move back into our discussion of the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921. We left off two weeks ago with Major General, or excuse me, Adjutant General Charles Barrett showing up in Tulsa the morning after the massacre and basically having Tulsa under martial law by about 11 a.m. Barrett would have been really the first guy outside of Tulsa to see the state that Tulsa was in. Obviously, Tulsa's residents who had just lived through that night of rioting would, would have gotten firsthand experiences, but Barrett and the Oklahoma National Guard were the first eyes to see Tulsa without knowing what had happened. They they knew that something was going on, but they came in and immediately saw this this you know, 30 plus sections of city block just burnt to the ground. The National Guardsmen were immediately called to aid uh, the local law authorities in any way they could in, say, helping out put out fires or helping um, deal with the care of the newly created refugees from the riot. And Adjutant General Barrett also recorded his own reactions to the riot and in Randy Kriebel's book, Tulsa 1921, he touches on this. And I think he does 
such a good job that I don't want to paraphrase it. I'd rather just read exactly. So I'm going to read from Randy Kriebel's book, and I'm reading on page 83. The general was quite appalled by what he found in Tulsa and adamant in his condemnation of it. He immediately ordered further reinforcements and laid a blistering lecture on city leaders, telling them that they would take care of the displaced blacks, not just today and tomorrow, but indefinitely. Accordingly to the New York Times, excuse me, according to the New York Times, Barrett demanded to know how it was that 25,000 whites armed to the teeth were ranging across the city in utterless and ruthless defiance of every concept of law and righteousness, which goes to show that there was an insane breakdown of order in Tulsa. Um, it would later come out that probably 25,000 is, is, a, is a stretch in the amount of uh, white men who were roaming Tulsa armed. But basically, before Barrett showed up, Tulsa was just a lawless jungle of burning and looting and rioting, um, specifically in Greenwood. And, and so it was just further uh, confirmation as to what had actually happened in that night in the situation in Tulsa on June 1st in that morning. The reason I emphasize Barrett's account is, like I said previously, Barrett was the first guy in from outside of Tulsa, so he seems to be the the least uh, personally motivated to present his picture of what was actually going on or how many lives were lost or how much destruction happened or how much property was damaged. So I think that his is probably the most credible of the uh, first eye-hand, first-hand eyewitnesses um, in that morning. But we do know that on that morning, there were still thousands of black residents, black Tolsons, being held at the town's ballpark in the convention hall. If you remember from two weeks ago, uh, the Tulsa police had basically gone around rounding up African-American residents uh, out of either a sense of uh, needing them to be detained for their protection against rioters or the fear that there was going to be a mass, uh, quote unquote, Negro uprising. Um and then also you have to take into account that a lot of people are probably just in there because they're newly created refugees. But the fact remains that you've got a bunch of people being held in these large areas, large outdoor areas, and the government's going to need to figure out what to do with them. But of course, like in the aftermath of all tragedies or all great instances of violence, before we figure out what to do with the victims of that violence or that tragedy, we immediately switch to the blame game. The first group to be blamed for the Tulsa Race Massacre were the law enforcement officers who were specifically assigned to protect Dick Rowland at the courthouse. Again, if you remember, um, Dick Rowland was being held at the Tulsa County Courthouse because he was moved from the county jail after fears of lynching, and there was a big concentration of men to protect him there, as well as there being a bit of a Sticky situation with the Tulsa cops at the time because it was the end of the month, meaning that all the shifts were changing, so everything was kind of a mess. So the blame went on the Tulsa police, meaning that they expended all of their resources protecting Roland. Now, here's the catch, is that the alternative wasn't that they didn't spend enough time protecting the black community. The catch is that the claim was that they didn't spend enough time disarming the African-Americans who showed up to the courthouse. So that was the first group that was given a lot of blame from the native Tulsans. Next, we have the organization that, if you ask me who I would blame for the Tulsa Race Massacre, obviously it's a complex nature of causes between, you know, uh, races amongst the citizens and everything. But if one if one group of people were to blame, put, put the, most of the blame on, 
it would be the Tulsa Tribune for running that uh, running that story in the afternoon edition of the paper, and possibly, probably not, in my opinion, running that uh, editorial calling for a lynching. Again, I don't think that editorial actually existed, but I think the factual story that they ran, or the quote unquote factual story, fake news story, uh, did enough to really fan the flames and cause the massacre itself. And I am not alone in that opinion. Uh, I think I'm backed up by by some uh, by some intellectual heavy hitters. This includes the Tulsa World, which was the other major Tulsa paper at the time, which is still the major Tulsa paper. Uh, Adjutant General Barrett, Walter White, funnily named, uh, who was actually the uh, the NAACP lawyer who was sent to Tulsa to um, obviously do investigations and do work for the NAACP, and also Roscoe Dungey who, if you remember from our Deep Deuce podcast, Roscoe Dungey was probably the most famous African-American in Oklahoma at the time. He ran the Black Dispatch, and uh, which became one of the largest African-American papers in the country. So very influential and obviously very heavily invested um, in the events that had just occurred. And their preliminary conclusion, which again, I think is correct, is that you could lay the lion's share of the blame on the Tulsa Tribune for uh, running the racy, factually incorrect in detail story that stoked the flames of prejudice that eventually burned down Greenwood. One of the most damning uh, pieces of evidence against the Tulsa Tribune came when a detective testified in the subsequent uh, criminal grand jury investigation that uh, Roland was never even going to be charged with assault. The cops had no intention of charging Roland with anything. They actually solely moved him to the courthouse for his protection from lynching. He, at this time, wasn't even really a suspect for a crime. Again, that was one detective's testimony. That's uh, that's not necessarily conclusive, but I think that it it uh, given that Roland wasn't uh, subsequently charged with any crime, and that Sarah Page, the white woman involved in the original incident that sparked the uh, sparked the writing. Uh, never intended at any point really to to press any charges. It seems to me that this is actually a very probably pretty credible uh, opinion. But the Tulsa World, uh, excuse me, the Tulsa Tribune responded, and uh, they also had a kind of an unlikely ally, which was the most famous American newspaper and still is the most famous famous American newspaper, the New York Times, that super reputable. Um, Pulitzer Prize winning collection of journalists and opinion writers. And I am very glad that you cannot see the face that I'm making when I have to say those words. But the New York Times uh, initially blamed the uh, the IWW, so the uh, industrial workers of the world for, quote, stirring up animosities for months, unquote. So kind of going into the what we're going to see pretty soon, the popular narrative that this was actually caused by either uh, the black citizens of Tulsa uh, rising up in rebellion, or that it was actually caused by uh, communist elements amongst uh, amongst the black Tulsans. And this, of course, I'm getting into uh, some difficult territory here because even though I'm going to uh, critique or give what I think is uh, a criticism of the insane levels of race consciousness and racial solidarity that we saw during this time. I don't really want to imply that this was wholesale. Um, there was a large contingent of even uh, the white population of Tulsa who saw that uh, 
that um, the Tulsa Tribune's article was incredibly irresponsible and probably was the single greatest leading cause to the destruction. Again, um, even uh, Adjutant General Barrett saw it this way. Uh, and there were a lot of individual Tulsans who also acted um, acted very admirably uh, in the in the wake of destruction. Um, many uh, Tulsans who employed uh, residents of Greenwood uh, took those families into their homes for for periods of time. Um, a lot of churches in Tulsa, as we will see, took a lot of people in um, to live there. And also, uh, most of the most of the aid being given to the food and the clothes and the provisions were being done by the Salvation Army and the Red Cross rather than the really uh, ineffective Tulsa municipal and or state governments. So I'm going to give some criticism, but there there were a lot of people who should be commended in their, their responses, and those are just some of the few. But again, um, and here I'm really just kind of going to give my reactions to uh, Randy Creeble's book, Tulsa 1921, Reporting a Massacre. Uh, he gives a lot of uh, really good first-hand uh, um, primary source accounts of the way that individual Tulsans responded. And I, man, uh, it, there was some very disturbing, what I thought were reactions from a lot of Tulsans who, even in the wake of destruction with, you know, 30 plus blocks of Greenwood being taken out, that a lot of people just immediately blame the African-American community. Again, this is where we go back to a lot of people immediately jump to, oh, there were there was going to be an uprising or, you know, there was a bunch of communists involved here that people in the heat of indignation defending, uh, wanting to defend destruction, uh, once, the, once the fires had cooled and once the smoke had stopped rising, uh, you're faced with the consequences of your indignation. And it's become just seems to be human, uh, human impulse to immediately grasp at straws to defend things that are obviously indefensible. And I know exactly how that sounds. And I will take that. I will take that um, line of reasoning to its logical conclusions. And if you disagree with this, that's okay. These uh, uh, these criticisms given by those individual white Tolsons really came in two areas. So there was uh, um, Protestant ministers, specifically a Southern Methodist minister, who claimed that this was the cause of letting black people fight in World War One. That you know they maybe got too used to freedom, and uh, so this led to the resentment that caused the race massacre. Uh, others, of course, just, you know, went after the police for focusing their forces on protecting Roland instead of disarming the African-Americans, which if you ask me, probably, you know, March or excuse me, May 31st, when you thought that there was a lynching going on protecting Roland, I think actually was the very rational thing to do at the time. And others blame the same no do-gooders who, uh, were responsible for the previous lynchings. Um, if you remember from two weeks ago, uh, the fear is that Tulsa actually had a lynching problem at the time. So there was some undercurrents of people who believe that the same people that were causing those problems were the same people that instigated the rioting. And now we're going to move into the second phase of the aftermath. So the first phase is the blame. Um, people waking up and seeing obviously what has happened in Tulsa and Immediately, uh, it's kind of the natural human reaction that we we need to build a narrative around it. We need someone to blame. So, after everybody started stop 
excuse me, pointing fingers, uh, there became the question of what are we going to do with Greenwood? Because Greenwood has been burned to the ground. At this time, there's still thousands of African-Americans who have either left Tulsa entirely or who are uh, living, sleeping in churches and being provided for by the American Red Cross and the Salvation Army. But there becomes what we will call uh, the conspiracy arising. Along with the phantom editorial that had called for Roland's lynching, uh, one of the other great conspiracies of the Tulsa Race Massacre is that it was an inside job by uh, white industrialists who were planning on burning down all of Greenwood in order to build a new manufacturing and warehousing center. Now, I'm going to be completely upfront. It does not appear that the burning of Greenwood was intended for this purpose. Uh, I, there was no conspiracy by the industrialists to burn down all of Greenwood in order to build uh, the warehousing district. But, and this is a big but, that didn't mean that those same industrialists didn't take advantage of the fact that Greenwood had just been burned down and uh, pretty soon submitted a plan to rebuild Greenwood again with industrial centers and warehouses and move the African-American population further north. And this plan had two main uh, main goals to it. First being, like, obviously, the new industrial center. Uh, secondly, uh, in War Insidious, was a further segregation of the racists in Tulsa. There was a common belief amongst uh, kind of the, the same people who thought that the that the Tulsa race massacre was caused by the uh, the quote unquote Negro uprising, that the only way to prevent further violence was to further segregate the races, and so they saw that this possibility of moving um, the African American Tulsans further outside of uh, downtown Tulsa would put sufficient space between the races in order to prevent that conflict, and those same industrialists and put their plan in and were so in good faith that when they offered to buy up that land, they offered to buy the land for the purchase price from, you know, sometimes up to 20 years before without taking in any appreciation or inflation. Uh, like I said, appreciation in the value of the land. This is, uh, I think, um, on one hand, it is an easy way to show that the industrialists were not, uh, we're not acting in good faith with this plan. Um, the other, the other uh, kind of thought I had was, well, it's a bit difficult to estimate how much the land is really appreciated when the land is, you know, all been burned down, and that you're asking for people to come in to invest in a in a community that has literally just been burned to the ground. Um, I have no idea. I'm not a. Uh, I I have no idea to tell what the value of the land was, but I do imagine that. And the way that Tulsa had grown and the way that Tulsa was still the world capital of the world at the time, that it probably was worth more than they had originally purchased it for. So this seemed to be a pretty bad faith uh, uh, suggestion on the part of the Tulsa businessman. And to make a long story short, there ends up being a very long, drawn-out process of complex litigation as to whether or not the Tulsa businessman, in conjunction with the city, can do this. And eventually, the courts declare that they cannot. Uh, the warehouse districting in Greenwood that was planned, uh, that plan uh, never actually happened. Um, 
and there would be that litigation as well as a grand jury inquiry inquiry into uh, the the rioting and the massacre. But unfortunately, uh, no convictions were ever. Um, there were no convictions related to the actual violence and the rioting. Uh, there were some people who, um, some law enforcement officers that were criminally investigated uh, for their actions in their official capacities, but no rioters, looters were ever actually convicted. And to this day, uh, I think I touched on this in our last episode about the race massacre. We're still not sure of the casualties. Um, it's almost universally accepted that the official numbers are probably too low. Uh, and it's, it's really unfortunate that uh, we're still not sure how many people actually died. Um, there were rumors, um, the third great rumor, the first being the, the editorial, the second great rumor being the conspiracy to burn down Greenwood. The third great rumor, unfortunately, was that uh, bodies were hidden in a mass grave in Tulsa. Um, Kreeble, again, in his book, does a good job of uh, showing that there were some good faith and uh, well-resourced uh, attempts to find these mass graves in Tulsa. Um, none were ever found, which I think is a good thing. I'd much rather live in a world where there weren't mass graves of victims of the race riot versus there being mass graves of the victims of the race riot. But that does not negate the fact that the casualties are still very, very high. And also in the aftermath, you had, again, 30 plus blocks of Tulsa burnt down and the modern equivalent of $33 million in property losses. And then we're going to move into the final segment of the Tulsa Race Massacre, which is the Conspiracy of Silence. This episode is titled Keeping Silence, and this is, I think, one of the biggest points. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you'll know that this is one of the reasons that uh, that I started podcasting about Oklahoma in the first place was that I didn't know anything about the Tulsa Race Massacre until I was a teenager, and then I had to find it out by myself. Um, so my opinions here are a mix of research and anecdotal evidence from older uh, Oklahomans I've talked to, as well as uh, I'm relying largely on Kreeble's uh, interviews with a lot of older Tulsans, that the conspiracy of silence was twofold. Um, first being on the white Tulsans, uh, and that really has to do with shame um, and guilt, because like I said, immediately after the race massacre, there was this large scale belief that the actual cause of the race massacre was due to um, an uprising of Tulsa's black citizens. People might have forced themselves to believe that for a short time. People did not believe that in the long run. Whenever you see a mass act of violence like that and people are indignantly supporters of that mass act of violence, even after the dust is cleared and you've seen a tragic event or a mass event of injustice happen, you have those people who immediately cling on to the nonsense arguments that this was somehow justified or that they're absolved of any complicity in supporting the people that did it. After a time, after a short time, though, these people just end up ignoring it. And that's essentially what a lot of, uh, unfortunately, white Tulsa did, is that it was a shameful event. They had gotten over the fact that it was their fault, and they just decided not to talk about it, because obviously reflected poorly on them. Kreeble also uh, 
focuses a lot on the African-American community's uh, response to the Tulsa race massacre. And there, there was um, not as much, maybe not as much uh, to be made out of it as you would expect, but there definitely wasn't really silence. Again, we focus on the conspiracy of silence, but they all knew, everybody knew um, again, uh, John Hope Franklin had written a short story about it, uh, or it was a fictionalized short story, but everyone knew it was about the Tulsa massacre. Um, it was reported in the national media, but was largely kept out of the school curricula. Uh, it, even in, uh, the histories of Oklahoma that were written in the 20th century, uh, it got little to no, uh, to no press. And there's also the obvious reason where if you were an African-American person living in Tulsa in the early to mid part of the 20th century with this uh, memory fresh in your mind, uh, it would seem that silence is probably a good idea because it could happen again. Uh, it was the the showing, the strong showing of individuals, of citizens uh, coming to protect Dick Rowland that immediately preceded the riot itself. So the fear might be that if African-Americans had obviously claimed uh, ownership or of the memory of, of the Tulsa race massacre, that they would somehow be putting themselves at risk like they were before, which is, I think, a totally understandable uh, fear. But the fact remains the same that this would be buried, uh, for all intents and purposes, amongst uh, mainstream discussion, uh, amongst uh, being taught in schools. The Tulsa Race Massacre would be one of the great silences in American racial relations, uh, especially in the 20th century, um, especially in Oklahoma. Uh, and we don't really have a good reason for it. Um, we have reasons, and they're, they're, some are understandable and some are just blatantly bad. This was before the Race Riot Commission was put together in the early 2000s, uh, which did their big deep dive into the causes and the events and the aftermath of the Tulsa Race Riot, uh, the Race Massacre, and uh, suggesting their, um, their recommendations for how to uh, engage in some rehabilitatory efforts in Tulsa. Um, and one of the members of that commission is uh, the director of the Oklahoma uh, Historical Society, uh, Dr. Bob Blackburn, who has his own podcast with Train Thompson. I think it's called A Very Okay Podcast. And they recently covered the uh, Tulsa Race Massacre. And uh, Dr. Blackburn obviously was heavily involved with this. He knows light years more than I do. So if you are further interested in this topic, I highly recommend that you check out that podcast. And with that, we're going to conclude our discussion of the aftermath of the Tulsa race massacre, which means that we're uh, concluding this year's uh, episodes on the Tulsa race massacre. Probably, hopefully this isn't going to be the last time we talk about it, but uh, I definitely need some, uh, some rest and recovery from, from the topic. It, it really takes a lot out of you. Uh, again, I, I apologize for the, uh, the absence last week and I'm very thankful uh, for the people who, waited a week to hear this episode as always uh i'm available at chautauqua review at gmail.com if you have any uh 
comments, uh, concerns, recommendations, or, you know, if you have a question about something or you want to talk about something, I'm always available there. And I'm also available on all of my social media, which is under my real name. And with that, uh, I really appreciate everybody listening and uh, we'll see you next week. And with that, this is the America of America podcast and I'm Will Milam. Thanks for listening.